You are listening to LearnOutLoud.com's production of Spiritual Classics. Collecting key excerpts from a wide range of religious traditions throughout human history, this podcast is dedicated to showcasing the core teachings of the world's greatest spiritual thinkers. For a complete listing of all the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit us at www.LearnOutLoud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. The Alchemy of Happiness by Al-Khazali, written in 1097 A.D., translated by Claude Field, from Chapter 8, The Love of God. The love of God is the highest of all topics, and is the final aim to which we have been tending hitherto. We have spoken of spiritual dangers as they hinder the love of God in a man's heart, and we have spoken of various good qualities as being the necessary preliminaries to it. Human perfection resides in this, that the love of God should conquer a man's heart and possess it wholly, and even if it does not possess it wholly, it should predominate in the heart over the love of all other things. Nevertheless, rightly to understand the love of God is so difficult a matter that one sect of theologians have altogether denied that man can love a being who is not of his own species and they have defined the love of God as consisting merely in obedience. Those who hold such views do not know what real religion is. All Muslims are agreed that the love of God is a duty. God says concerning the believers, He loves them, and they love Him. And the prophet said, Till a man loves God and his prophet more than anything else, he has not the right faith. When the angel of death came to take the soul of Abraham, the latter said, Have you ever seen a friend take his friend's life? God answered him, Have you ever seen a friend unwilling to see his friend? Then Abraham said, O Azrael, take my soul. The following prayer was taught by the prophet to his companions. O God, grant me to love thee and to love those who love thee, and whatsoever brings me nearer to thy love and make thy love more precious to me than cold water to the thirsty. Hassan Basri used to say, He who knows God loves him, and he who knows the world hates it. We come now to treat of love in its essential nature. Love may be defined as an inclination to that which is pleasant. This is apparent in the case of the five senses, each of which may be said to love that which gives it delight. Thus, The eye loves the beautiful forms, the ear the music, etc. This is a kind of love we share with animals. But there is a sixth sense, or faculty of perception, implanted in the heart, which animals do not possess, through which we become aware of spiritual beauty and excellence. Thus a man who is only equated with sensuous delights cannot understand what the prophet meant when he said he loved prayer more than perfumes or women though the last two were also pleasant to him. But he whose inner eye is open to behold the beauty and perfection of God will despise all outward sights in comparison, however fair they may be. The former kind of man will say that beauty resides in red and white complexions, well-proportioned limbs, and so forth, but he will be blind to moral beauty, such as men refer to when they speak of such and such a man as possessing a beautiful character. But those possessed of inner perception find it quite possible to love the departed great, such as the Caliphs Omar and Abu Bakr, 
on account of their noble qualities, though their bodies have long been mingled with the dust. Such love is directed not towards any outward form, but towards the inner character. Even when we wish to excite love in a child towards anyone, we do not describe their outward beauty or form, but their inner excellences. When we apply this principle to the love of God, we shall find that He alone is worthy of our love, and that if anyone loves Him not, it is because He does not know Him. Whatever we love, in any one we love, because it is a reflection of Him. It is for this reason that we love Mohammed, because he is the prophet and the beloved of God, and the love of learned and pious men is really the love of God. We shall see this more clearly if we consider what are the causes which excite love. The first cause is this. The man loves himself and the perfection of his own nature. This leads him directly to the love of God, for man's very existence and man's attributes are nothing else but the gift of God, but for whose grace and kindness man would never have emerged from behind the curtain of non-existence into the visible world. Man's preservation and eventual attainment to perfection are also entirely dependent upon the grace of God. It would indeed be a wonder if one should take refuge from the heat of the sun under the shadow of a tree and not be grateful to the tree, without which there would be no shadow at all. Precisely in the same way, were it not for God, man would have no existence nor attributes at all. Wherefore then should he not love God, unless he be ignorant of him? Doubtless fools cannot love him, for the love of him springs directly from the knowledge of him, and whence should a fool have knowledge? The second cause of this love is that man loves his benefactor, and in truth his only benefactor is God. For whatever kindness he receives from any fellow creature is due to the immediate instigation of God. Whatever motive may have prompted the kindness he receives from another, whether the desire to gain religious merit or a good name, God is the agent who set that motive to work. The third cause is the love that is aroused by contemplation of the attributes of God, His power and wisdom of which human power and wisdom are all but the feeblest reflections. This love is akin to that we feel to the great and good men of the past, such as the Imam Malik and the Imam Shafi, though we never expect to receive any personal benefits from them, and is therefore a more disinterested kind of love. God said to the prophet David, That servant is dearest to me, who does not seek me from fear of punishment or hope of reward but to pay the debt due to my deity. And in the Psalms it is written, Who is a greater transgressor than he who worships me from fear of hell or hope of heaven? If I had created neither, should I not have deserved to be worshipped? The fourth cause of this love is the affinity between man and God, which is referred to in the saying of the prophet, Verily God created man in his own likeness. Furthermore God has said, my servant seeks proximity to me, that I may make him my friend, and when I have made him my friend, I become his ear, his eye, his tongue. Again, God said to Moses, I was sick, and thou didst not visit me. Moses replied, O God, thou art Lord of heaven and earth, how couldst thou be sick? God said, A certain servant of mine was sick. Hadst thou visited him, thou wouldst 
have visited me. This is a somewhat dangerous topic to dwell upon, and it is beyond the understanding of common people, and even intelligent men have stumbled in treating of it, and come to believe in incarnation and union with God. Still, the affinity which does exist between man and God disposes of the objection of those theologians mentioned above, who maintain that man cannot love a being who is not of his own species. However great the distance between them, man can love God because of the affinity indicated in the saying, God created man in his own likeness. The Vision of God All Muslims profess to believe that the vision of God is the summit of human felicity, because it is so stated in the law. But with many, this is mere lip profession which arouses no emotion in their hearts. This is quite natural, for how can a man long for a thing of which he has no knowledge? We will endeavor to show you briefly why the vision of God is the greatest happiness to which a man can attain. In the first place, every one of man's faculties has its appropriate function which it delights to fulfill. This holds good of them all, from the lowest bodily appetite to the highest form of intellectual apprehension. But even a comparatively low form of mental exertion affords greater pleasure than the satisfaction of bodily appetites. Thus, if a man happens to be absorbed in a game of chess, he will not come to his meal, though repeatedly summoned. And the higher the subject matter of our knowledge, the greater our delight in it. For instance, we would take more pleasure in knowing the secrets of a king than the secrets of a vizier. Seeing, then, that God is the highest possible object of knowledge, the knowledge of Him must afford more delight than any other. He who knows God, even in this world, dwells, as it were, in a paradise, the breath of which is as the breath of the heavens and the earth, a paradise the fruits of which no envy can prevent him plucking, and the extent of which is not narrowed by the multitude of those who occupy it. But the delight of knowledge still falls short of the delight of vision, just as our pleasure in thinking of those we love is much less than the pleasure afforded by the actual sight of them. Our imprisonment in bodies of clay and water and entanglement in the things of sense constitute a veil which hides the vision of God from us, although it does not prevent our attaining to some knowledge of Him. For this reason God said to Moses on Mount Sinai, Thou shalt not see me. The truth of the matter is this, that just as the seed of man becomes a man and a buried date stone becomes a palm tree, so the knowledge of God acquired on earth will in the next world change into the vision of God, and he who has never learnt the knowledge will never have the vision. This vision will not be shared alike by all who know, but their discernment of it will vary exactly as their knowledge. God is one but he will be seen in many different ways, just as one's object is reflected in different ways by different mirrors, some showing it straight and some distorted, some clearly and some dimly. A mirror may be so crooked as to make even a beautiful form appear misshapen, and a man may carry into the next world a heart so dark and distorted that the sight of which will be a source of peace and joy to others will be to him a source of misery. He in whose heart the love of God has prevailed over all else, will derive more joy from this vision 
than he in whose heart it has not so prevailed. Just as in the case of two men with equally powerful eyesight, gazing on a beautiful face, he who already loves the possessor of that face will rejoice in beholding it more than he who does not. For perfect happiness, mere knowledge is not enough, unaccompanied by love, and the love of God cannot take possession of a man's heart till it be purified from love of the world, which purification can only be effected by abstinence and austerity. While he is in this world, a man's condition with regard to the vision of God is like that of a lover who should see his beloved's face in the twilight, while his clothes are infested with hornets and scorpions, which continually torment him. But should the sun arise and reveal his beloved's face in all its beauty, and the noxious vermin leave off molesting him, then the lover's joy will be like that of God's servant, who, released from the twilight and the tormenting trials of this world, beholds him without avail. Abu Suleiman said, He who is busy with himself now will be busy with himself then, and he who is occupied with God now will be occupied with him then. Yahya ibn Muez relates, I watched Bayezid Bistami at prayer through one entire night. When he had finished, he stood up and said, O Lord, some of thy servants have asked and obtained of thee the power to perform miracles, to walk on the sea, and to fly in the air. But this I do not ask. Some have asked and obtained these treasures, but these I do not ask. Then he turned and seeing me said, Are you there, Yahya? I replied, Yes. He asked, Since when? I answered, for a long time. I then asked him to reveal to me some of his spiritual experiences. I will reveal, he answered, what is lawful to tell you. The Almighty showed me his kingdom, from its loftiest to its lowest. He raised me above the throne and the seat and all the seven heavens. Then he said, Ask of me whatsoever thing thou desirest. I answered, Lord, I wish for nothing beside thee. Verily, he said, Thou art my servant. On another occasion, Biasid said, Were God to offer thee the intimacy with himself of Abraham, the power and prayer of Moses, the spirituality of Jesus, yet keep thy face directed to him only, for he has treasures surpassing even these. One day a friend said to him, For thirty years I have fasted by day and prayed by night, and have found none of that spiritual joy of which thou speakest. Biasid answered, If you fasted and prayed for three hundred years, you would never find it. How is that? asked the other. Because, said Biasid, your selfishness is acting as a veil between you and God. Tell me then the cure. It is a cure which you cannot carry out. However, as his friend pressed him to reveal it, Biasid said, Go to the nearest barber and have your beard shaved. Strip yourself of your clothes, with the exception of a girdle round your loins. Take a horse's nose-bag full of walnuts. Hang it round your neck. Go into the bazaar and cry out, Any boy who gives me a slap on the nape of my neck shall have a walnut. Then, in this manner, go where the cadi and the doctors of the law are sitting. Bless my soul, said his friend. I really can't do that. Do suggest some other remedy. 
This is the indispensable preliminary to a cure, answered Bayezid. But, as I told you, you are not curable. The reason Bayezid indicated this method of cure for want of relish in devotion was that his friend was an ambitious seeker after place and honor. Ambition and pride are diseases which can only be cured in some such way. God said unto Jesus, O Jesus, when I see in my servants' hearts pure love for myself unmixed with any selfish desire concerning this world or the next, I act as guardian over that love. Again, when people asked Jesus, What is the highest work of all? He answered, To love God and to be resigned to His will. The Saint Rabia once asked whether she loved the Prophet. The love of the Creator, she said, has prevented my loving the creature. Ibrahim ben Adman, in his prayers, said, O God, in my eyes heaven itself is less than a gnat in comparison with the love of Thee and the joy of Thy remembrance, which Thou hast granted me. He who supposes that it is possible to enjoy happiness in the next world apart from the love of God is far gone in error. For the very essence of the future life is to arrive at God as at an object of desire long aimed at and attained through countless obstacles. This enjoyment of God is happiness. But if he had no delight in God before, he will not delight in him then. And if his joy in God was but slight before, it will be slight then. In brief, our future happiness will be in strict proportion to the degree in which we have loved God here. But, and God may preserve us from such a doom, if in a man's heart there has been growing up a love of what is opposed to God, the conditions of the next life will be altogether alien to him, and that which will cause joy to others will to him cause misery. This may be illustrated by the following anecdote. A certain scavenger went into the perfume seller's bazaar and, smelling the sweet scents, fell down unconscious. People came round him and sprinkled rose water upon him and held musk to his nose, but he only became worse. At last one came who had been a scavenger himself. He held a little filth under the man's nose and he revived instantly, exclaiming with a sigh of satisfaction, Ah, this is perfume indeed. Thus, in the next life, a worldling will no longer find the filthy lucre and the filthy pleasures of the world. The spiritual joys of that world will be altogether alien to him, and but increase his wretchedness. For the next world is a world of spirit, and of the manifestation of the beauty of God. Happy is that man who has aimed at and acquired affinity with it. All austerities, devotions, studies have the acquirement of that affinity for their aim, and that affinity is love. This is the meaning of that saying of the Koran, He who has purified his soul is happy. Sins and lusts directly oppose the attainment of this affinity. Therefore the Koran goes on to say, And he who has corrupted his soul is miserable. Those who are gifted with spiritual insight have really grasped this truth as a fact of experience and not merely traditional maxim. Their clear perception of it leads them to the conviction that he by whom it was spoken was a prophet indeed, just as a man who has studied medicine knows when he is listening to a physician. This is a kind of certainty which requires no support from miracles 
such as the conversion of a rod into a snake, the credit of which may be shaken by apparently equal extraordinary miracles performed by magicians. The Signs of the Love of God Many claim to love God, but each should examine himself as to the genuineness of the love which he professes. The first test is this. He should not dislike the thought of death, for no friend shrinks from going to see a friend. The prophet said, Whoever wishes to see God, God wishes to see him. It is true a sincere lover of God may shrink from the thought of death coming before he has finished his preparation for the next world, but if he is sincere, he will be diligent in making such preparation. The second test of sincerity is that a man should be willing to sacrifice his will to God's, should cleave to what brings him nearer to God, and should shun what places him at a distance from God. The fact of a man sinning is no proof that he does not love God at all, but it proves that he does not love him with his whole heart. The St. Fudhell said to a certain man, If anyone asks you whether you love God, keep silent. For if you say, I do not love him, you are an infidel. And if you say, I do, your deeds contradict you. The third test is that the remembrance of God should always remain fresh in a man's heart without effort. For what a man loves, he constantly remembers. And if his love is perfect, he never forgets it. It is possible, however, that while the love of God does not take the first place in a man's heart, the love of the love of God may. For love is one thing, and the love of love another. The fourth test is that he will love the Koran, which is the word of God, and Muhammad, who is the prophet of God. If his love is really strong, he will love all men, for all are God's servants. Nay, his love will embrace the whole creation. For he who loves any one loves the works he composes and his handwriting. The fifth test is this. He will be covetous of retirement and privacy for purposes of devotion. He will long for the approach of night, so that he may hold intercourse with his friend without let or hindrance. If he prefers conversation by day and sleep at night to such retirement, then his love is imperfect. God said to David, Be not too intimate with men, for two kinds of persons are excluded from my presence those who are earnest in seeking reward and slack when they obtain it, and those who prefer their thoughts to the remembrance of me. The sign of my displeasure is that I leave such to themselves. In truth, if the love of God really take possession of the heart, all other love is excluded. One of the children of Israel was in the habit of praying at night, but observing that a bird sang in a certain tree very sweetly, he began to pray under that tree, in order to have the pleasure of listening to the bird. God told David to go and say to him, Thou hast mingled the love of the melodious bird with the love of me. Thy rank among the saints is lowered. On the other hand, some have loved God with such intensity that, while they were engaged in devotion, their houses have caught fire and they have not noticed it. A sixth sense is that worship becomes easy. A certain saint said, during one space of thirty years I performed my night devotions with great difficulty, but during a second space of thirty years they became a delight. When love to God is complete, no joy is equal to the joy of worship. The seventh test is that lovers of God will love those who obey Him 
and hate the infidels and the disobedient. As the Quran says, they are strenuous against the unbelievers and merciful to each other. The prophet once asked God and said, O Lord, who are thy lovers? And the answer came, Those who cleave to me as a child to its mother, take refuge in the remembrance of me as a bird seeks the shelter of its nest, and are as angry at the sight of sin as an angry lion who fears nothing.